take your Bibles, if you would, then at this time and turn with me in the New Testament to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1. The Gospel of Mark in chapter 1. And they went into Capernaum, that is, Jesus and these fishermen that he has just called to be his disciples, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, says the demon, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. May God add his blessing to the reading of that text. Let's bow again before the Lord and ask him to open its meaning to our hearts in a fresh way today. Father, because you have given us the printed word by your grace, we are privileged to hear the very voice of God in these words. Your truth comes to us with all of your wisdom and power to renew our minds, to literally transform our lives, setting us free to follow Jesus. We ask you to bring home to our hearts today more of your truth, so that we might bring you more glory by the lives we live in this world until Jesus comes. And we ask this in the matchless, the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever wondered why on earth poor Cinderella had to wear glass slippers? I guess I'm weird, but I wonder about things like that. Dancing with a prince must have been nerve-wracking enough without worrying about your shoes breaking into a million pieces if the prince happened to step on your toe. The story of Cinderella was written by a Frenchman named Charles Perrault who lived in the 17th century. Perrault wrote that Cinderella's slippers were made, and of course he was writing in French, he said they were made of vaire, which is French for ermine. The slippers were actually made of fur. 
the story has it that a proofreader or a scribe of that day thought that Vair was a spelling error and that the author had meant to write their air, which is French for glass. Well, the rest of the story, folks, is history. Now, I share that piece of innocuous trivia in order to illustrate the force behind what we have read in verse 22 of Mark 1. Read it again with me. Mark chapter 1 and verse 22. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the proofreaders or the scribes. Who do you think is in a better position to tell the story of Cinderella? A fallible proofreader, a scribe, or Charles Perrault, the actual author? Can you imagine Perrault rising from his grave to correct a Walt Disney? Or maybe the two have talked to each other somewhere since, I don't know. Uh, The slippers are not made of glass, you dummy, I can hear him saying. And I can hear him adding, I ought to know. I wrote the book. Jesus comes into the synagogue. And respecting its tradition, the scrolls are taken down and read. The Torah, for those of you that were in our weekend in the Word last weekend, the Tanakh, portions of the Old Testament. But when Jesus stands to speak from the scrolls, to read and comment, he does not do as was typical of the scribes and rabbis. He does not begin to quote generations of rabbinical opinion. He does not begin to recite a multitude of rules and regulations for every possible situation in life. He does not reinforce opinion by quoting the respected authorities of the day. But whatever it is that Jesus is doing this day as he teaches from God's word, he does and it has a direct impact on the hearts and the minds of the hearers. I will suggest to you that the congregation that day stands aghast. It says in our text, they were amazed at how he taught. In fact, this congregation was finding that the words of Scripture and the teaching of Jesus for the first time began to expose their hearts before a holy God, the very motives of their hearts. Well, the scribes, you know, had taught incessantly and nothing happened. When Jesus teaches, all kinds of things happen. In fact, as we've read the text, I say this with a degree of reverence, all hell breaks loose. The demons themselves are told 
with that same voice of authority from the teacher, Rabbi Jesus, the demons are told, shut up and get out. And they go. And the people say again, there in verse 27, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. Now, earlier in the chapter, which we did not read, we observed the familiar calling of four fishermen. Back there in verse 17, you can glance at it. Follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. We observe that Jesus commands them to follow him. And if they are to become his servants and co-laborers in the gospel... If they are indeed to become fishers of men, I want you to observe the first major lesson in their matter of discipleship. And understand then that this is also the first lesson that you and I need to get who would be disciples, who would be followers of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 21 again. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he, dragging along these fishermen, entered the synagogue and did what? Began to teach. Now this morning for you serious students of God's word I've inserted a page of Sermon notes. You might want to take those now and fill in the first blank. The first lesson in our discipleship, as was theirs, is this. That the principal task is teaching. Put in the word teaching. The principal task is one of teaching. If you're going to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, doesn't matter if most of your life was given to a kind of physical occupation such as fishing, for fish was, if you're to be his disciple, you are to get to school. Teaching. The principal task is teaching. See that. From the marina along the Sea of Galilee, they come to the classroom. The synagogue was primarily a teaching institution. I like to refer to it as a Bible institute. In fact, there was no music, there was no singing, and there in the synagogue, there was none of the ceremonial stuff like sacrifices made, the temple was a place for worship and sacrifice. But here in the synagogue, in order to have a synagogue form and develop, you need at least ten families, we are told. That was the pattern. You see, ten working families tithing ten percent could afford to pay one hundred percent of the rabbi's salary. 
They would ask him to spend his week in the study of God's word so that when they came together at the synagogue, which was like a Bible institute, they could hear the word of God. By the way, I just want to mention in passing that the pattern for the New Testament church is built far more on the concept of the Jewish synagogue than the temple. We do not do things as Christian believers in worship that model after the temple, why all the aspects of the temple has been already fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have time to go into that. But the synagogue, the place of learning, uh, we can take a sort of inside look at a typical synagogue service. Would you like to see one? If so, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke for just a moment. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Beginning at verse 14, I'll read. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. Now I want you to see what he's doing, what Jesus is doing. Verse 15. He began, what? Teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom. Look at it again. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And we have a portion of it here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The text, you see, has been read, but it has not yet been taught. The preacher having a text then teaches. Verse 20, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. There must have been something about the way he read the scriptures. Even though he grew up here in Nazareth, their eyes are upon him. Verse 21, he teaches. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that leaves no question as to how to interpret at least one small portion of the book of Isaiah. Uh, no matter how great or few your disciplines in Bible study and interpretation, here's one portion of Isaiah that is not left open to debate. We can read those verses and we have the authority of Jesus saying, I am the personal fulfillment of that Isaiah prophecy, a prophecy concerning the Messiah. The principal task is one of teaching. The message of Christ and therefore the message of Christianity I want you to hear me this morning, is to be taught. And it takes more than a little two-page gospel tract 
to accomplish that. I love tracks. I'm glad we have a track rack in this church. I like the little booklets that help us present the gospel in a hurry when that is necessary. Like four spiritual laws you ought to know. God loves you, has a plan for your life. You're separated from Christ bridges the gap. You know the approach. Memorizing just a few verses in the book of Romans. Uh, the Romans road is a way of reminding us of the key scriptures that point to the need for sinners to repent of their sins and turn to the only one who can forgive sins who is Jesus Christ, all well and good. But the gospel is much more. The message of Christianity is much more. And Jesus knew it. And what he did was teach, teach, teach. Biblical Christianity is an appeal to the mind of the hearer. Teaching is required because the issue is one of truth. The language of a saving God is what? What does God say when He wishes to say by His mercy sinners? What does He say? Well, in one place, it's unmistakable. He says, come now, let us, you tell me, reason together. By the example of Jesus. These fishermen disciples, we who are no less followers today, comes the task of truth-telling. The Great Commission, what is it? Is to go and make disciples. Oh, I thought it was just to get people to say, yes, on a little card says, I believe, or follow after me as I Quote this prayer, Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know that you came to die for sins. And in four sentences, when the amen is pronounced, we pronounce the person safe and secure for all eternity. We satisfy ourselves that some decision was made for Christ. may have been the first time they'd ever heard the gospel. That much of it. Now, beloved, the gospel is so powerful that that much of it can save for sure. If indeed the Holy Spirit is doing a work of regeneration. The Great Commission, though, is clear. It's not go and get people to make decisions to follow Christ. It's to go and teach them all things. All the things that I taught. That's what the four Gospels are. If you have a red letter edition, you know how much of the beginning of the New Testament is Jesus teaching, teaching, teaching. But of course, beloved, we do not at this present hour live in an age of serious study and learning. In fact, I receive in the mail pastoral, professional journals that between the lines and sometimes directly are telling me as a preacher and a pastor in this hour that teaching is not the way to do it today. Where are they getting that message? Same place the politicians do. Stick a finger into the wind. And when they do that, they discover that yes, we live in a sensate culture. A culture that's not concerned with any pursuit of real truth because, after all, we're told there is no one real truth. 
And all that is left are the senses. An age we live in that wants to be stimulated in the areas of the senses, not in the areas of the mind and serious thinking. One great preacher today, well, he's now home with the Lord, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, one of my mentors in in ministry, said within the last months of his life on earth, just a year or so ago, hung his head and wept for our generation, calling it, quote, a mindless culture. But beloved, the most serious error we could make today is to accommodate a sensual culture instead of continuing to confront the minds of people. If you ask me, how has the God of this age blinded the eyes of unbelievers and he has different methods of operation in different times in history. But if you ask me, how has the God of this age blinded the eyes of unbelievers that they would not believe, I will tell you that pop culture is his greatest weapon. A mindless culture is at a great disadvantage when it comes to grasping the gospel. Come now, let us reason together. Reason. Think. I don't want to think. I want to feel. And I want to feel good, by the way, preacher. In a postmodern age of no absolutes, it is out of season for a gospel of truth. Which is why I'm thankful for clear instructions to me as a preacher in God's Word. It says just keep preaching it, whether it's in season or out of season. Just a couple of decades ago, as I ministered on the New Jersey shore for many years, as most of you know, I came to that area and began my first pastorate, and I was invited to teach in an area Bible Institute. That was a season, just 20 years ago, among Christians, a season for teaching. I can't tell you, but I was deeply moved that literally hundreds of folks would cram into our classes on a Monday night after a long, hard day of work. Many were being equipped for effective teaching ministries in their local church. Others were from liberal churches so hungry for anything having to do with the Bible They crammed in there on Monday nights and were hearing the gospel for the first time. Some of them were getting saved. I had the privilege of being a Bible Institute teacher, which at one point had baptized about one-fourth of the people I was teaching the Bible to on a Monday night in a Bible Institute. That was 20 years ago. Ten years later, one decade, I presided over the folding of that Bible Institute. And then an attempt to start a new one. It folded. And since I have learned that one of the larger churches in that area tried again but failed to find enough interested Christians in pursuing a deeper knowledge of the Scriptures. Through the years in my former church's vacation Bible school, it had often fallen to me to create clues for the mystery box. One year, 
in the mystery box. It keeps the kids' interest all week. You give a clue every day, and at the end of the week, whoever guesses gets a prize. And one year, we decided to put a Bible inside of a mailbox and put it in the mystery box. The answer at the end of the week would be, it's God's love letter to sinners, the Bible. Now, the first clue I came up with was this, and you must admit, this must have been rather sophisticated for four, five, and six-year-olds. But you didn't want to give it away too soon in the week, so the first clue that I gave was this. I held up the mystery box. Inside was a Bible. You already know that, see? And I said, the first clue being, it's not what you think. <laughs> Whatever you think may be in this box, it's not what you think. But of course, as most of the clues did, it was meant to be a play on words. And beloved, isn't that the whole point of the Bible's teaching when we take it seriously? What do we discover right away? His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. The way he thinks, we don't think. How we need the word of God. I remember day number two and the clue that year was held up the mystery box. Whatever's in here, kids. It will change your mind. And that's the goal, isn't it? of any study of God's Word is to lead us sinners, which includes all of us, by the way, pastor and people alike, into the place of all-important repentance. Uh, by the way, a word that you don't hear a lot from today's pulpits. Repentance. The literal word meaning a change of mind. The fact is, the people of Jesus' day we're not all too different from ours in some respects. Jesus will teach, 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 but you know what they asked for, asked for, asked for? Miracle. We want to see you do that again. That was a good one. That bread you multiplied, man, that is the best bread I've ever had. Give us some more of that bread. And at one point, Jesus got so frustrated in his teaching ministry that he says, I'm not going to do any more miracles. He said that. And when he ceased doing miracles, you know what he kept on doing? Teaching, teaching, teaching the truth of the kingdom. Time won't allow us to turn to many scriptures, but even if we stayed right here in the short Gospel of Mark, uh, let me give you a fast tour without turning there. Mark chapter 1, verse 21, we read it, I quote, he began to teach. Chapter 1, he began to teach. Chapter 2, verse 13, quote, all the multitude were coming to him and he was teaching them. Chapter 4, 1 and 2, he began to teach them again by the sea. He was teaching them many things. Chapter 6, verses 2, 6, 30, and 34. Listen to this. He taught again, see, again and again in the synagogue. He was going around the villages teaching. The apostles gathered with Jesus and they reported to Him all that they had done and taught. When He went ashore, and I'm quoting Scripture, He saw a great multitude. He felt compassion for them because they were like sheep 
without a shepherd. So what did he do about it? The next words say, and he began to teach them many things. I won't take the time to read chapter 8, verse 31 of Mark, chapter 10, verse 1, 11, verse 17, but listen to chapter 12 and verse 14. They came and said to him, and by now, you know how they address Jesus? We went from chapter 1 where he began to teach to the other chapters where it says again and again and again and again he taught. By the time we get to chapter 12, they came and said to him, not Jesus, they came and said to him, Rabbi, they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful. Truthful. And defer to no one. For you are not partial to any. And then they gave this credit to his teaching ability. You teach the way of God in truth. Oh, may that be said of us. Again, no time to read chapter 12, verse 35, or chapter 14 and verse 49. But there's a Greek word in the Gospel of Mark and in all the other Gospels and in the epistles which occurs over and over again. It is the word didasko, which being interpreted means literally to teach. We get the English word didactic from it. Do you know what didactic teaching is? Didactic teaching is not when a few people sit around in a circle and everyone gets a turn to tell you what they think the Bible means. No, didactic teaching, we today would call preaching. Didasco. There are 95 occurrences of that word in the New Testament. Now listen. Two-thirds of the occurrences of didascope to teach are in the Gospels and the first part of Acts. Luke begins the book of Acts by saying, quote, the first account I composed was all about what Jesus began to do and teach. While Luke, the author of Acts, goes on to record that after the ascension of Jesus, the church now born was known for this. The very first thing, what was it? Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles, what? Teaching in doctrine. Well, this tells us, and I'm glad it does, and I can cancel a few subscriptions to a few of those professional pastoral journals, that we do not have to come up with some new teaching for modern times. But that the church forever is to be founded and faithful to a gospel, to its truth, to its teaching, once and for all delivered to the saints. That's a pretty big book. And there's a lifetime of study. Who today would claim that they know it? Certainly not your pastor. You know, a recent, fairly recent evangelical fad a while back was to wear all these bracelets and buttons. WWJD. That's all right. 
This tends to ask the supposed follower of Jesus to get a sense or try to come up with some kind of feeling about what Jesus would do in a given situation. But I wish I'd thought of it first. First of all, I'd been rich if I'd sold all those bracelets and buttons. But I would have called it WDJT. It's not so much what Jesus would do that matters as whether I am doing what Jesus commanded. What He taught. WGJT is better. What did Jesus teach? I don't have to stop and get a warm feeling about how I think Jesus might handle some situation that He never did have to handle that I might have to on a Monday. But the Word of God is all sufficient to tell me everything, I'm quoting Scripture, everything I need to know for life and for godliness. In its teaching, the whole counsel of God. Point two in the outline, much more briefly, aren't you glad? The principal task is teaching. The expounded truth, once it goes forth, has, is, authority. That's why we call the Bible the Word of God. What gives the Bible, this book, what gives the Bible any real weight or authority? Well, it only derives that because of what the Bible is. If someone asks you, I hope you'll answer in the correct way. What is the Bible? There are a lot of different answers out there today, even among deeply religious people, about what the Bible is. When someone asks you, well, what is the Bible? You're to answer with the right question. The Bible is the Word of God. And that's what makes it authoritative. One can hardly miss Mark's point here in his record. That which made the teaching of Jesus unique from all others was the matter of authority. The crowd was smart enough to discern that. Verse 22, he was teaching them as one having authority. The Greek word here is exousia. Look with me at verse 27. Mark 1 and verse 27. The word appears again. And they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with exousia. <laughs> with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. You see, another synonym for this Greek word exousia translated here authority is literally the word power. This is teaching, or these are words backed up by power. God's power. Now that's the reason for the story where Mark puts it. A man bound in sin and in bondage to demons themselves. And the providential purpose of the demon-possessed man's deliverance 
was for Jesus to put on display outwardly the power that works inwardly whenever Jesus' truth is taught, preached, or declared. Whether it is taught by Him, it has authority, or whether it is delivered through His servants down through the ages. We can't take the time to turn there, but in chapter 2 we will see a man whose sins inwardly are forgiven. And people will be offended by Christ's claim to have the power and authority to forgive sin. Remember, Jesus had to say to them, this was a man who couldn't walk. Jesus said, rise up and walk. And then he said, your sins are forgiven you. Actually, first he said, your sins are forgiven you. And they criticized him for that. What power, by what authority could Jesus forgive sins? Jesus says, well, which do you think is easier? Get this man to rise up and walk or to forgive sins? Since you're having a problem believing in the authority and power of my teaching, then I say to him, rise up and walk. But the miracles are never the main thing. In fact, I heard someone cry it out when I asked the question earlier. In fact, miracles in the New Testament is a word best translated as simply a sign. When I see a sign on the other end of Venice that says Inglewood this way, by the time I reach the sign, I am not in Inglewood. It tells me I've got seven more miles to go. It's pointing the way. If you're looking for a sign from God, and even if you get one, you haven't arrived. Signs only point to the ultimate destination, which is truth. A truth that comes with exousia. It was quite providential, I think, ironic. On another day, I might call it a mistake. We have someone who ministers regularly now in changing the sign out in front on the highway in front of our church. I have a whole collection of them. Some of you have been giving me good ones to put up. I'll get to yours eventually. We'll hang the message up each week. Just so happens, right now, out there on that sign, you know what it says? It says, books in form. Only the Bible transforms. This is truth teaching with exousia, that which can change and transform a life. That's the third point in the outline. The disciples' testimony is what they witnessed. It is what happened to this demon-possessed man. It is transformation. Only the Bible transforms. When the gospel, God's very power, is preached and taught, what do we know? Real miracles take place. Not in the physical realm anymore so much. More wonderful miracles. Spiritually blind eyes are open and see Christ for who He really is. Spiritually deaf ears hear the sound of life in the words of the Gospel. Closed hearts as hard as rocks. God says, my word taught and preached and proclaimed can break rock like a hammer. Praise God. Following Christ as these fishermen must learn teaches us 
that we have the ministry of truth-telling. You say, Pastor, why did you stop the study of Romans? It's been pretty heavy, hasn't it? And bring us back here to Mark 1. Because I intend to go back to Romans and to tell you the truth about what it teaches. The question is, will we have a teachable spirit? I appreciate when someone comes to me, and several have, even over the past couple of months, and said, you know, I'm not sure I agree with you. I got good news for all of you. You don't have to agree with me. You don't even have to agree with my interpretation of Scripture on a particular issue. We're going to get into some deep and wonderful theological truths in the book of Romans. I intend to teach it using all the best tools of biblical interpretation I've ever been taught to use. And I hope with all humility, totally dependent upon the Lord to get it right. But in the final analysis, you must give an account. I must give an account for what we find here. And don't think you already, after 60 years of church going, have all the answers. The priority for Jesus was teaching. And the question today is, do you and I have a teachable spirit? Far too many Christians in a mindless age have settled for the comfort of what I call Christian cliches. All their doctrine is wrapped up in about 20 well-worn phrases. In another place, the doctrine's about as deep as what I like to call bumper sticker theology. We'll never grow. We'll never exhibit the glory of God and the gospel of grace that he wants us to display until we take as seriously as Jesus did the teaching, the teaching, the teaching of the word of God. I know we're swimming upstream in a downstream culture right now, but as you pray for your pastor and other pastors who are seeking to remain faithful in a mindless culture, pray that the Word of God would go forth faithfully taught and proclaimed.